Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. On today's episode, we give our analysis on the first two games against the Raptors, as well as give our predictions for Game 3. Let's get to it. <laughs> What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. We got Chris and Lucas on today. What's going on, guys? I'm doing well. How about you guys? I'm doing good too, guys. Yeah, I pulled off a game in Toronto last night, so even in the series up, coming back to Philadelphia. But first, let's go back and recap game one. So game one, Kawhi Leonard, 45 points, 16 to 23 from the field, completely dominated the game. What are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, I think Kawhi at his peak is probably a top five player, or at least in that discussion. So it's something that Sixers are obviously going to have to deal with all series. One of the best isolation scorers in the game. So he's going to have big games like that. But I do think one thing that was problematic was perhaps some of the defensive um, rotations that Brett selected. I know Jimmy Butler drew the initial assignment that game. And I think Kawhi was scored 16 points on 5 of 6 shooting um, against Butler, was 5 of 5 for 11 points when guarded by Harris. So those two guys spending significant time on Kawhi really helped him get more open looks, get more uh, momentum going. I think Simmons was pretty clearly the best defender on Kawhi in that game, and that was obviously an adjustment that was made going into game two. But, um, yeah, Kawhi's just a super impressive player has the ability to single-handedly keep Toronto in these games and in game one case, uh, single-handedly win the game in points. The biggest takeaway I guess I could see from that is that besides Kawhi Leonard being, well, I mean, you look at Kawhi, you look at his resume, you know he's faced LeBron in the finals, you know, multiple times. He's, as Chris said, one of the best isolation scorers in the game. He can impact the game on multiple ends, and he did. And as Chris said, Ben is the best defender that you can put on him purely because of his height and athleticism. And this isn't to say that Butler or Tobias are bad uh, defenders. Butler's been, uh, you know, one of the top two-way players in the league, but he's just playing. Kawhi's just that much bigger than him when you look at it. And then Harris, he's just he struggled defending both of the. Raptors' best players, and you know, it's not to say that you know Harris is a scrub. He's definitely not. But when you look at it, it's just that he's outmatched defensively in the series when it comes to those two uh, players, uh, uh, Leonard and Pascal Siakam. 
One thing that was annoying for me is you could tell Jimmy wasn't fully engaged on defense. And when I rewatched the game, four of Kawhi's makes were Jimmy gambling, trying to steal the ball. And a few of them happened like right inside the paint where Jimmy would try to wrap around Kawhi, try to poke the ball out. And Kawhi would just just extend the ball and shoot a layup or he'd do it out before Kawhi put the ball on the floor and Kawhi would just sweep right by him and score a layup. So Jimmy just gambling on Kawhi, just first off, just because Kawhi is such a dominant isolation player, it's not smart, but at the same time, Jamie's just not the best option for Kawhi because he's six seven, but Kawhi's like seven five ish wingspan is even if they're the same height, Kawhi just can get over the top of him every time when he's shooting the ball. And I saw this stat the other day that Kawhi Leonard leads the NBA all time in true shooting percentage in the playoffs with sixty two point six percent. Wow. Yeah. I mean, game one was probably Jimmy at his worst defensively just because, like you said, he wasn't engaged. He was making a lot of ill-advised decisions, and Kawhi is one of those guys who's going to take advantage of those mistakes. And the Sixers also didn't send as many double teams. You know, they didn't blitz Kawhi as much as they could have, and I think that allowed Kawhi to kind of maintain that rhythm without forcing him to make a ton of high-level decisions. So, yeah, game one just wasn't the greatest game plan when it came to a defending Kawhi and Jimmy's struggles and Tobias's struggles didn't help much. Jimmy did struggle, but Kawhi did make a lot of difficult shots, as did Siakam, yeah. who's the next guy we're going to talk about. He had 29 points on 12 of 15 shooting, 3 of 4 from 3-point, and having Tobias on Siakam was also another defensive matchup that I didn't understand, just because Siakam's strength and speed just completely outmatches Tobias because Tobias at his best is an average defender and Siakam has been averaging almost 24 points a game during the playoffs and he just like physically he just completely outmatched Tobias and just inside making those crafty layups and then he had a few difficult mid-range shots he made over Tobias. Well I don't think when you look at Tobias he's never been an elite interior defender and Pascal Siakam is almost a, a almost in a way uh, throwback to old school power forwards that can take you down inside. Now, granted, he's more granted he's much more versatile than the old school ones. He can dribble and he can obviously hit the outside shot. But and we saw this in game two. Obviously, you need to have somebody more physically capable. And it's not like Harris was at a physical disadvantage. He weighs five pounds more than Siakam at two thirty five, and they're the same height. Uh, granted, Siakam has a much wider wingspan. Still, it's not like a terrible mismatch, at least when you put a, a physical abilities and physical traits. And like you said, he's an average defender. But, you know, I guess Harris has never been an interior defender and then put an interior scorer against him. It's not going to be pretty. And I do think, to an extent, this just isn't the best matchup for Tobias defensively with both Pascal and Kawhi being able to outmatch them to the degree that they have. And as we saw in game two, and something we'll obviously touch on later, um, hiding him on Gasol has pretty much been the Sixers' best option. So this definitely wasn't the best defensive matchup for Tobias, and it's something Brett just had to uh, scheme around. Yeah, so speaking on questionable defensive matchups, let's also talk about Ben defending Kyle Lowry. So in the first ser- first round against the Nets, Ben guarded D'Angelo Russell most of the time and did really well guarding him. But Kyle Lowry is not the same type of scoring threat as D'Angelo Russell is. So having Ben on Kyle Lowry just is it's ineffective in a way because Kyle Lowry doesn't move a lot on offense 
and Ben just basically not his skills aren't being used to his full ability I thought in game two when Ben was on Kawhi obviously he defended him a lot better but I just it was scratching my head when Ben started the game and the entire game guarding Lowry Go, yeah, going I back to think- the uh, – sorry, I, I wanted to point this out because I, I wrote about this today. Uh, going back to game one about Siakam, it's interesting. He shot eight of nine inside the paint versus in game two, and obviously we'll talk about that matchup later, but he shot six of 15 in game two. Just shows the t- shows the tell uh, shows you how well of a post player Siakam is. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump back. It just it was a stat that I forgot to mention in my previous statement. I think at this point, Ben has pretty clearly established himself as the best option on the opposing team's most dynamic offensive player. So with the Nets, you know, D'Angelo's the guy who initiates the offense. He's the guy who gets inside, who kind of works in isolation a lot. So I thought that was a really good way to utilize Ben then. But as you said with Lowry, he's a very different offensive threat. There's a lot more off the ball, spotting up from three different stuff. Whereas Kawhi is kind of the main point of attack that you need to stop. And especially with Kawhi's size and strength, I think it became pretty clear pretty quickly that putting Ben on Kawhi is the way to go this series. Yeah, so among starters, Kyle Lowry's fourth on the Raptors in usage rate at 17.7%. So having Ben, having basically your most capable defender to guard Kawhi Leonard be on, I'd say the fourth option for the Raptors because it go, the offense goes through Kawhi, Siakam, and Gasol most of the time now. So throwing Ben on, Lowry just doesn't make that much sense. And like we talked about earlier, Tobias on Siakam wasn't the best either. And JJ's actually done a pretty good job defending Danny Green. He has been doing his soft hedges, which the Raptors probably should take advantage of in the upcoming games on the pick and roll. But JJ's done a pretty good job last series defending Joe Harris and this series defending Danny Green thus far. Yeah, I think that's been a really big development just because JJ was so easily exploited last postseason and during the regular season. Having him being even a remotely average or even just slightly below average defender has really helped the Sixers in taking away one of perhaps their biggest weaknesses. So Brett having J.J. not switch screens, having him top lot guys like Harris last round and Green this round, it's been really effective. I tend to agree because J.J. for the most part hasn't, he hasn't, his shooting hasn't necessarily struggled for the most part, but his his overall production and points per game has. And so this uptick in defense, and maybe he's just been saving it until the postseason to play this hard of defense, but this uptick in defense has kind of offset his lower production of points uh, this postseason. Let's move on to the Sixers offense in game one. So they started the game off pretty well, scoring 31 points in the first quarter. It was 31-39. And then after that, their offense just didn't look the same. The only time it looked close to good was in the third quarter when JJ hit those five threes but that wasn't even really the offense that was just JJ like running through and hitting off balance shots which he didn't make in the first half and overall for the game the Sixers shot 39 percent compared to Toronto's 52 so they just they never got into a rhythm after that first quarter and every time the Sixers got close they got within a few times they got within four points three points or even two points at one time and right after that the Raptors would increase the lead back up to double digits they couldn't cut that lead down and sustain it they just 
couldn't consistently score runs. Well, I think that's a concern for the whole entire series because you know we won by we won second game at with 94 points. The Rapids best defensive teams in the league. They are proving that against us, who we are one of the better offensive teams in the league. You know, on the season, I believe we averaged around 117 points per game or close to that. So, or at least after the Harris trade. So. That in itself, that that concern has to do with, with Embiid not being able to be Embiid. But I mean, the, Redick for the most part has not been playing like himself. Simmons has been effectively shut down on offense on the offensive end, and Harris has had uh, did not perform that great in the second uh, game either. So, luckily, where our offense has done well has been the. Um, has been the on from the bench. James Ennis has been a big help in, in both games, really. And then Greg Monroe had a nice second game before he got injured. Yeah, I would, I would, I would disagree with Ben getting shut down in game one, especially. I think Ben was on both ends, really, the Sixers' best player that game. He was six to seven from the field. I think fourteen points. He might not have been as aggressive as we would have liked, but I think he was pretty clearly the Sixers' best player in a game where pretty much everyone else struggled to some degree. Gasol has done a really good job defending Embiid in the post. Um, You know, some of it is obviously Embiid being not terribly healthy at this point, but Gasol has done a really solid job on him. Um, Butler was really passive in game one, scored just 10 points, I think, on 4 of 12 shooting. Obviously, he was more aggressive, more active, looking for his shots and creating on offense in the second game, and the benefits were pretty clear. Um, Tobias has struggled in both games, really. He got off to a pretty nice start in game one, but that kind of died down relatively quick. So, yeah, I think Simmons was pretty solid in game one, but that's about all the Sixers had going for them. I don't think he was bad in game one, but he wasn't what they needed him to be in order to win that game in game one, which we needed aggressive Ben, you know, the one that scored 31 points against the Nets, especially when he saw everybody else was struggling, especially Embiid. He needed to step up there, and we didn't see that, Ben. And maybe we just need Jared Dudley to troll Ben again in this series. Who knows, to get him playing like he did. But right now, Ben isn't being what the Sixers need him to be in order to give them a comfortable or well I don't think you could ever be comfortable against the Raptors but at least more assurance that we have more offensive firepower coming uh, from the starting five yeah I think that's fair but I I also would think that Ben's role has had to change this series just because Kawhi is his primary defender and we saw in the regular season that Ben can't do against Kawhi what he can do against a lot of teams so Britt has had to move him into more of an off-ball role where he's cutting to the basket and setting screens so I really think this series Joe and Jimmy are going to have to be the Sixers two most prominent offensive pieces in order to win yeah I definitely agree MB was a lot of people said before the series started that Embiid was the X factor. He had to be the best player in the series if the Sixers would win. And his health and his matchup on Marcus Gasol is a big factor in that. And in game one, Gasol held Embiid to 5 of 18 shooting with only six free throw attempts. And the best thing Gasol was doing is he's using his strength and wouldn't allow Joe to get deep position in the post before he get the ball. And Embiid just wasn't able to use his strength to back him down and power him into the post. And when MB doesn't have that option, he was really frustrated when he was putting up bad mid-range shots. He'd do those little dribble pull-ups from 15 feet. 
On defense, too, Joel struggled against Gasol because Gasol's shooting ability pulled Joe away from the basket, and it limited his, limited his rim protection. So overall, in Game 1, Joe was completely off his game, and he was in Game 2 as well, but especially in Game 1, he struggled marvelously from the field and just couldn't get anything going. Yeah, I think Gasol is probably one of the best Embiid defenders in the league. I think he's established that over time. I think game one's 16 points was the most points Embiid has scored in a game against Gasol, which just speaks to how, how effective this Spaniard has been in his career against Joe. Well, you know, you look at the physicality, and it, not only is Gasol like one, one of the last few old school centers, he's a, he's a wall, you know, he's a brick wall. Uh, Embiid's really never had to face anybody else like like Gasol. Uh, Gasol, I think he was overweight when he first came into the league. He slimmed down now, but he's still a brick wall. And on top of that, he's 7-1, so he matches up height-wise with Embiid perfectly as well. The only thing that Embiid did do, and he's kind of did this at well, the last one of the last scoring plays the Sixers had in Game Two was uh, he drove on him. Now, obviously, you have the risk of Joel turning the ball over there, but he can he can drive past uh, Gasol, and if, he, if Gasol doesn't get help side uh, from his teammates, that could be an area where Embiid could possibly exploit Gasol in the future. A lot of people forget that Mark Gasol was 2013 Defensive Player of the Year. And obviously he's out of his prime now, but he's still a very capable defender in this series. And it's definitely something to monitor as these games go on. We'll talk about what the Sixers should do to get him beat some more shots later. All right, so game two, Sixers, they won a game in Toronto. The first time they've beaten Kawhi Leonard, which is an irrelevant stat. But they won 94-89. And one thing Brett Brown did was he adjusted defensively in a lot of t- a lot of the critiques about Brett Brown has been that he's a bad he doesn't make adjustments game to game just in the few like little bit of time he's been in the playoffs but they moved and beat onto Siakam Simmons defended Kawhi most of the time and then Tobias was guarding Marcus all and then they put Jimmy on Kyle Lowry and I think all those adjustments were very very effective and it showed with the Raptors only scoring I think 17 points in the first quarter and in the first quarter of game one Kawhi and Siakam combined for 17 points. So those defensive adjustments they made were the reason why the Sixers won this game. Yeah, I definitely think it's a credit to Brett. I think he made some really strong adjustments in the first round against Brooklyn. And then last night, um, Monday night, he showed again that he's capable of making adjustments. He's really kind of quieted that crowd to an extent. Um the defensive adjustments really helped. Embiid guarding Pascal not only made Pascal less effective around the rim because he had to deal with Embiid's size and length, but it also allowed him to kind of help off and protect the rim more than it did with Gasol, who's a better spot-up shooter. So that was big. Um, there isn't really an ideal matchup, as we've said, for Tobias in this series, but if any you want anyone on that Toronto offense to really beat you, you want to make Gasol do it. So if he's going to be passive, if he isn't going to attack that Tobias Harris matchup in the post, then that's where you want to have him. Yeah, in game two, Tobias guarded Mark Gasol in 35 possessions, and he only guarded Gasol one possession in game one. And while Tobias was guarding Gasol, 
Gasol only took one shot and missed it, had zero points, but he had three assists. But Tobias did – the one thing Tobias can do is he's strong enough in the post to not let Marcus All completely back him down and overpower him. One thing the Sixers wanted to do is they wanted to try to force Marcus All to beat them shooting the ball. And going back to you talking about Embiid on Siakam, Siakam – or Embiid guarded Siakam 41 possessions and – Siakam scored 15 points on six of 17 shooting on Embiid. And one thing about Siakam is it's sort of he's sort of like this in regards to Giannis is they don't really have an in-between game like a mid-range pull-up. And so having uh, Embiid guard Siakam, he does he's not going to beat him off the dribble and pull up for that jump shot. So Embiid was like he's fast enough and he's strong enough to not let Siakam blow by him or back him down in the post. And in game two, he was two of seven from three and seven of 18 on twos. And during the regular season, he Siakam shot 60% on twos compared to seven of 18 last night. So Embiid definitely did a good job on defense, but he didn't do well on offense, but he bounced back and defended very well. Just another interesting, not only how that he defended Pascal well, is how he did it. Well, Monroe did it too well as well, did uh, defended Pascal uh, good as well uh what they did is they didn't they didn't cheat up on, on him on the three-point line they they basically baited him into beating them with three-pointers um and he obviously couldn't do that this game but i they gave him enough space to where if he tried to drive on them he could they could recover but also do at least a uh a, a weak contest to a jump shot you know be able to at least put a hand up near them so i liked that part uh so not only did brett make the switch but i guess he at least instructed joel how to best guard that as well i'm not 100 percent sure if that's the case but it, it seemed to be the case and to talk more about simmons defending Kawhi, like we said earlier simmons didn't have the best offensive game in game two but he did play over 40 minutes and he did really well at getting over screens and making Kawhi leonard's three-point shots tougher Kawhi overall went 3 of 10 from 3 in Game 2 versus 4 of 8 in Game 1. And through this series, Simmons has defended Kawhi the best, uh, limiting him to 12 of 25 shooting. But the most important thing is when Simmons guards Kawhi, he's 0 of 9 from 3. And so just Simmons was getting right up in Kawhi's face and not letting him make those three-pointers. That completely killed us in Game 1. So Simmons' defense on Kawhi, he, it took a lot of energy, which reason why he wasn't as effective on offense. But if Simmons can continue defense like this on Kawhi, which Kawhi still had a great game last night, but if Simmons can still not let him drop 45, then I say it's a win in the in our books. If he can do that, and then Siakam cannot completely destroy us on offense as well. Yeah, I do think we've been talking for a while about Ben having all defense kind of potential, and I think we're he's kind of starting to realize that. Uh, this postseason, he obviously defended D'Angelo well in the first round, and he's been really excellent on Kawhi these first two games. Kawhi's a special enough talent where he's still going to get his. He still has scored 35 last um, in game two, so he was still incredibly effective, easily Toronto's best player. But Ben, as you said, has done a really good job of getting in his airspace on three-point shots. He's defended him well on drives. He's fought around screens. So I do think just Ben's development into a legitimately elite defender has been really big for the Sixers, especially with how limited his offensive game can be at times in these series. Him being an all-world defender is going to help him be a really important part for the rest of the postseason. I guess with 
I think that we just need to continue having the Sixers need to continue having Ben on Kawhi. I think that's a formula for success. You you make Kawhi beat you, like you make Giannis beat you, or if you make uh, or make Kyrie beat you by himself. Like if you can make the superstar beat you by themselves, you can live with that. But you can't let somebody else like Siakam or Lowry go off for a big game. Uh, you got to make sure that those other guys work way harder than necessary to get their offense. Kawhi's going to get his, like Chris said, but you know what? He Ben did the best. He made him work for those shots, and even though he shot still pretty well from the floor, those weren't easy shots. Yeah, and Kawhi is one of the best guys that, like last night, there's so many, even on the shots that Kawhi made, Ben couldn't have contested him any better, and Kawhi was still hitting him. So he's one of the best guys at just hitting contested mid-range shots in the league. And one thing to add is we were talking about how Siakam and Leonard have both just been the primary scorers for the Raptors in this series. Raptors not named Kawhi and Siakam struggled last night. Gasol was one of six from the field for five points. Danny Green was one of eight from the field for three points, and he missed that wide open game tying three in the last 30 seconds of the game. And then Ibaka was one of five with for two points in that game. And, Kyle Lowder actually had a solid game last night. He had 20 points, but the the Raptors had no bench help. They only had five bench points compared to the Sixers' 26. And so besides the Raptors, Lowry, Siakam, and Leonard, they had no help whatsoever. They had a combined 18 points uh, outside of those three. Wow. Toronto's bench has been surprisingly bad. This series, I don't think they've have been nearly as elite as last season beforehand, but they've been even worse, I think, than expected in this series. I think the oh, Sixers bench love- has outscored them like 50 to 15 through the first two games. And, um, you know, that's pretty embarrassing considering how bad the Sixers bench is. So it's definitely a weakness that Toronto's going to need to worry about moving forward. I would like to make a correction. It was not by – they did not have 18 points. They had 13 points between Gasol, Green, Powell, and Ibaka. Wow. So, as everyone watched knows, the game was kind of a tale of two halves. The first half, the Sixers were up by 13 at halftime. were 8 of 15 from three. They had 14 assists on 16 made baskets, so the offense was flowing pretty well. And the crazy part was Joel Embiid only had one field goal attempt in the first half with only four points. And the Sixers seemed to be firing on all cylinders except for turnovers. They had 13 first-half turnovers, which the Raptors scored 18 points off of. And the Sixers were up by 13 at halftime. But it felt like, from my perspective and everyone else, that the Sixers should have been up by way more than that. They just were played by turnovers. Yeah, they definitely gave up a few... um... Way too easy baskets at the end there. They were up by 19, I think, at one point in the second, so they kind of let it slip away. But then, as you mentioned, the second half was vastly different. Toronto hit some of the shots they were missing in the first half, and it ended up being a really close game down the stretch where um, you know, Danny Green missed uh, several momentum-swinging shots. It was The Sixers almost got lucky in a sense there. But, um, yeah, the second half was a lot sloppier, a lot, um, a lot slower, but Jimmy... Time and time again, came up big down the stretch. Embiid had one of his two field goal makes with 24 seconds left to put the Sixers back at three. I thought that was really impressive and just showed kind of the guts Embiid played with last night. He was obviously hampered both by his knee and by his stomach flu, but he was still able to get it out, play some really big defense down the stretch, and hit 
perhaps the biggest shot of the game. So I think that's a huge credit to Embiid. That was a real superstar play down the street. And uh, it was a really impressive way to close things out in Toronto. You want to know who had the most turnovers last night? was Embiid. He had five assists to six turnovers. That has to change. And granted, they were double teaming him a lot. And actually, the, one of the game clunch, uh, clutching uh, shots was, was made from Butler off an assist from uh, Embiid. So that's that's a positive there. I'm just, I don't think the Raptors are going to shoot that poorly again in Game Three. And while well, this Game Two win was a very it gave the Sixers life, the offense has to get better in Game Three. Uh, you only had one sh- uh, two starters that shot over. Uh, well, actually, I'm not exactly sure what Butler's percentage was, but. Reddick shot over 40%, Simmons shot 50%, and then Butler shot 9 of 22 from the floor, which should be close to um, 40%. Not yeah. like a sh- okay. So you got Embiid shooting 2 of 7, you got Hare shooting 3 of 11. Uh, James Ennis shot 40%, and so did Greg, uh, Greg Monroe is really the unsung hero of last night. And maybe it's just because he's familiar against the Raptors because he practiced against these guys. He played at home in Toronto for, I believe, 18 games. I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to double-check that number. But he's he played more than a handful of games in Toronto. So he's used to how those play, most of those players defend it, maybe outside of Gasol. But I say you ride Greg Monroe for the rest of this game. Of this series as your backup because Boban he was a minus five in one minute of play and Amir played okay but Amir is not going to be able to give you legitimate minutes for a long stretch of time and Monroe gives you a very solid passer and a good rebounder he had three offensive rebounds that's the most of any sixer and I believe that's that ties for the most in the game uh, along with Kawhi Leonard also Monroe had plus eight uh, plus plus minus plus eight for the game, which is the most among Sixer players. So I think actually the most in the game. So assuming that he can be healthy for game three, Monroe and Ennis and hopefully Mike Scott, but if not, you know, Monroe and Ennis will have to keep on driving this bench force for our offense. Yeah, going back to like you said about Greg Monroe and James Ennis, they were the heroes off the bench last night. They combined for 23 points. Ennis had 13 points on four of 10 shooting, like you said. He was the team's second leading scorer, actually, 17 fewer points than Butler. But he's Ennis is sort of stepping into a Ersan Ely Silva role where he's hitting threes and drawing charges and getting offensive rebounds. And he also had an N1 in the first half. And I think he had 10 of his points in the first half. So he was with a lot of the Sixers struggling. He was on offense. He was Des Barclub off the bench. And then same thing with Monroe. He was just shooting that 2012 left hook shot that he used to on the Pistons. And he provided a lot of scoring with Embiid being ill and only shooting one time in the first half. But like you said, we need to monitor his ankle because Boban and Bolden aren't capable. And surprisingly, out of... Bobin, Bolden, and Amir. Amir was the best out of those three last night. Yeah, and I do think one key adjustment that Brett made last night was shortening the rotation a bit. Like we mentioned earlier, Ben played 44 minutes. Jimmy played 42. Even Tobias and JJ both played 35. And obviously that's not ideal. Those aren't ideal numbers. But with how shallow the bench is, Ennis was the only one who played over 11 minutes, I think. And he's the only one that's really capable of playing 
significant minutes off the bench at this point. Shortening the rotation was a big adjustment that helped the Sixers kind of maintain momentum last night. I also like the idea of having Monroe uh, guarding uh, Siakam, uh, like Embiid did with the first unit. Because Monroe, he's he's not a shot blocker, but he's a big body. He's 265. So he can body up Siakam down low. He's 6'11. So he can, you know, he's not, he doesn't have a huge wingspan, but, you know, he's solid enough to guard him down low. And then he's, they don't really run pick and rolls with Siakam being the screener uh, very often anyway. So the, you don't have to worry about getting him in the pick and roll unless they decide to change that, but I, which I doubt. Uh, really, the only place that you have to worry about Monroe go, guarding Siakam would be on three pointers, which I, he did a great job last night, and then in transition, which Siakam obviously has the advantage on. But if we limit our turnovers next game, I don't think that would be as much of a problem. Ennis, I just love the energy that he plays. He gets he he only had one offensive rebound, but he was there almost every position fighting for an offensive board, and I love that about I love that energy that he had. And if we can get Mike Scott back, the rotation of those three, I think our bench is going to be pivotal in a game three win if we can pull off a game three win yeah going back to what you said about the pick and roll one thing that Sixers adjusted with last night is they attacked Marcus all in the pick and roll and it was more effective when Embiid was out of the game because when Embiid's out they usually take Brett would always take JJ Joel and Ben out of the game and it leaves Tobias and Jimmy in and the pick and roll frequency increases a lot and it's their base offense. And when Monroe was in the game, he scored a majority of his points rolling hard to the basket. And Monroe, unlike Embiid, who likes to sit on the perimeter and do pick and pops, Monroe off that pick rolls hard to the basket. And that's how he got a lot of his points. So if Monroe can stay healthy, him running that pick and roll with Jimmy and Tobias is a great option for the Sixers coming off the bench. I have a I have a thought for you guys. How, I know that Embiid's not really a pick and roll type of guy. He's more of a pick and pop. But do you think he could get more offensive uh, looks running, diving down to the paint and looking for that dump down? Because Gasol's not quick enough to defend the pick and roll if somebody runs to the uh, basket quick. And we know Embiid's quicker than Gasol at this point in Gasol's career. So do you think Brett should encourage him to run more down, uh, down uh, north south instead of east to west on the pick and pops? That's de- I definitely think he should because guess Embiid's not going to be able to muscle Gasol down this series, so he's going to need to move in space. And like you said, Gasol is a very poor pick and roll defender. So if Embiid can get any shots out of anything, he's not the he doesn't have much experience with the pick and roll just because he doesn't like rolling to the basket as much as he likes to ISO and back a guy down. But if MB can just start running off those screens with Jimmy and Tobias, that'll completely open up the offense because Brett has changed the offense from more of a motion, uh, high passing offense to a lot of pick and roll. And Embiid will it'd be an easy way for him to get a few easy baskets because he usually he has a, the, a lot of shots he takes are pretty high difficulty shots, so he can get a few easy baskets just doing what Monroe did last game. And hopefully, when they watch film before Game Three, MB can just see how easy Monroe's shots were because it was just easy jump hooks, which MB could do in his sleep. Yeah, and I do think the Sixers need MB to place the floor to some extent, just because Ben's a non-shooter, especially when they're in the game together. But yeah, with how poor Gasol is in space, I think the best way to get Embiid going and to get him some easy buckets is kind of pulling Gasol away from the rim and making Embiid beat him. 
that way through the pick and roll. Do you guys also think that would be beneficial to have uh, Ben become the role man in the first in the first unit's offense? Have him beat out on the perimeter, have Ben screen for Butler Harris, and then have Ben dive. Or do you think uh, Leonard's too good of a defender to where that wouldn't work for Ben in a positive way? That's one thing I was actually going to bring up later is that it's not really a concern, but with Butler and Harris being primary ball handlers a lot since the Sixers have changed their offense up against the Raptors, Simmons hasn't really found a role on the offense, and I think using him as a ball screener or a cutter would be very effective because right now he's kind of he's kind of just lost, and he can't score on Leonard, and so I think he just set screens for J.J., set him for Embiid so Embiid can get easier shots or set him off ball for Tobias when uh, Jimmy's running – Maybe if Jimmy's running a pick and roll, a two-man game with Monroe or Embiid, then M- Simmons can set some stack screens off ball for Tobias or JJ. So I think Ben, he's set a lot more screens this year than he did his rookie year, but he's definitely going to have to find a roll off the ball because he's not going to be able to do what he did the Nets against this highly talented Raptors defense. I think that's what what Brent, Brett, uh, Brett Brown should really try to exploit in game three and see because – you know, I wouldn't mind seeing one or two plays of uh, Ben and Joel pick and roll or Ben's the screener because Joel's a good enough passer to where if they switched on him and Ben slips to the basket, and could hit him in stride and then Simmons could have an easy roll. But I guess it would be kind of like how would you – I'm not sure if that would be feasible for a long stretch of time, but I think I would like to see that at least once or twice in game three. Yeah, like you were saying about Embiid being a pretty good passer, this is a fun stat, but the Sixers shot five of seven from threes, uh, from three off Embiid's passes last night. So Embiid, he had, he had six turnovers, but he's he's been passing decently out of the post. He had that one pass at the end of the game, like you talked about earlier, where he just looked like he just threw it over his head to Jimmy, who had that clutch shot at the end of the game. But speaking of Jimmy, that was the biggest story of the game for the Sixers last night. I mean, he had 30 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists. The second leading scorer for the Sixers was Ennis at 13 points. And he's the first Sixer since uh, him and Charles Barkley, the only Sixers to post 30, 10, and 5 in the playoffs in the last 30 years. So Jimmy just, like he's done at points during the year, just puts the team on his back and carried him to the promised land. Yeah, it's like Brett said, that Jimmy was kind of the adult in the room. He's the most playoff experienced player in the Sixers rotation at this point. And I think that again was on display last night and he had several big shots as we've mentioned throughout the podcast. And just his ability to create in isolation, to create in the pick and roll and to kind of hit those tough shots at the end of games is something the Sixers really were missing last year. And I think that is arguably the biggest difference between this year's team and last year's team and why they're able to compete with a defensive group as talented as Toronto is having Jimmy there to kind of carry the offense in the half court and to hit those big shots at the end of games. With Butler, um, he's not going to always make it look pretty, but he's going to get he does just enough to get the job done. And it's not to say that he he's putting in half effort. He's putting in all effort. It's just that, you know, at his age, his the amount of mileage he's already put on his uh, NBA legs, um, he's not able to do the stuff he could do three or four years ago. But still, he does enough at this point to be able to carry the team at the end stretch of the game. And I believe that unless Kawhi starts guarding Butler in game three, we can ex- expect Butler to have at least one more of these type of nights where he gets 30 points. 
Yeah, it's just so weird that Butler game to game, he had 10 more shots in game two than game one, and he actually had a career high in three-point attempts. He went four of 10 from three. And one thing Jimmy did really well last night was his just his ability to draw fouls. He had three and ones. He had that and one three on Danny Green that resulted in Danny Green getting a tech, and Jimmy shot more free throws. He had that driving layup on Norman Powell, and he had that left-fitting right-handed runner on Siakam in the fourth quarter. So just his ability to draw fouls just – Gives the Sixers more easy offense from the free throw line. And like I was talking about, that and one on Norman Powell, Jimmy took full advantage of that Norman Powell matchup, just attacking the rim. And Norm on the floor against Jimmy just was a complete mismatch, and Jimmy took full advantage of it. Yeah, we've been asking Jimmy to take more threes pretty much all season since the trade. It's been a weakness of his. It's just his passivity from three-point range. So him taking 10 and shooting at a pretty efficient clip, 40%. It was obviously a big positive and something he should really embrace moving forward because it spaces the floor and it's a pretty efficient shot. So he should definitely continue to uh, increase his volume from three-point range. And also what helps Jimmy on offense is this game he guarded Lowry, so he had a lot more energy on the offensive end because Lowry doesn't really move much on offense. And so him guarding Lowry is not as physically punishing, so he could – exploit and attack offensively through the whole game. And then when it got to the fourth quarter, well, it was actually at the end of the third when the game actually was tied, then Jimmy got put, Brett put Jimmy back into the game and Jimmy just started taking over the game. And he had, like we said earlier, he had that big three to clinch the game for the Sixers. And like he's done all season, he gets to the fourth quarter, he puts the team on his back and he just takes the Sixers to victory. I guess my biggest concern is can he do it three more times? Especially without the help of Embiid, because uh, Embiid doesn't look like he's going to end up starting to do his t- uh, 27 and 13 stat line for this series. It doesn't look like he's going to be able to break out of the Gasol strength that the Raptors have him in. So I guess my it's great that he was able to do it tonight, but I don't know if we can rely on a you know 30 point Butler uh, outing to get us a win without any help from any of the other starting five. Yeah, I do think Embiid's definitely going to have to play better than he did the first two games. I don't think game two is going to be the norm. I think his sickness was pretty evident because he only took seven shots and he was pretty clearly uncomfortable throughout the night. TNT even had that close-up of him coughing, which is kind of weird. But I do think it just goes to show how sick Embiid was. You know, he's normally far more aggressive than he was last night, even when he isn't 100% healthy. So I would anticipate Embiid having better games in the future. I don't think Gasol is going to completely shut him down for for five to seven games. But you can't rely on Butler to the extent that they did last night. It's definitely going to have to be a combined effort between him and Embiid. And Tobias is going to have to step up in some games as well. So let's move on to what adjustments that we'll think the Raptors will make in Game 3. So the first thing that I think of is that Nick Nurse will probably match Gasol with Embiid's minutes because just to make sure that Gasol is not in the game for the Butler and Harris pick and roll because there's just a high frequency of the Harris-Butler pick and roll when Embiid's out of the game. And just to get Gasol out of as much pick and roll defensive opportunities as he can. And instead, when he takes Gasol out, throw a Baca in there because he's a more mobile, capable pick and roll defender. So a nurse matching Gasol and Embiid's minutes is definitely the first thing in my head that the Raptors will do in game three. I agree with that. I think also what he'll do with Gasol beyond just um, making sure that he matches minutes is that – 
if I was if I was Nick Nurse, I would try to take advantage of the uh, Tobias Harris matchup. I would try to see at least get it to the point. I'm not saying that Gasol would beat the Sixers. No, that's not going to happen. But it might. I if I was Nurse, I would try to get Brett Brown out of that defensive match as, as quickly as possible. Because then my other players like Siakam. Uh, would be able to thrive a lot easier without, you know, having Joel on uh, Gasol. So I think that could be a thing. I don't know if that will happen. Another thing that I would do if I was Nick Nurse is put in, uh, put um, Kawhi on Butler because Danny Green's been guarding Butler, especially in Game Two, and Danny Green has not done a good job, as we can all tell. I think you can live with. I I think you can live with. Ben Simmons having a good game. I don't think you can live with Jimmy Butler having a good game because Jimmy Butler is going to carry the team, especially in the fourth. If not, if you're not going to guard Butler with Kawhi for the whole entire game, at least do it for the fourth quarter. And he did the last game. And I, I anticipate seeing more of that in this game coming up. Also, we might see Jeremy Lin instead of Fred Van Vliet because Van Vliet has not played good this series. So we might see a little bit more Jeremy Lin. Yeah, to go along with Van Vliet's struggles, uh, he was a minus 18 last night, and in game one, he was a – actually, yeah, he's just a minus 18 last night, so he struggled a lot. And speaking of that bench struggling, I think that when Kawhi's out of the game, they need to make Siakam the pick-and-roll ball handler and just to put a bunch of shooters on the floor around Siakam – and just have Siakam run that pick and roll because he's Siakam's a decent passer. And just when Kawhi's not in the game, the Raptors have no one to create offense, and Siakam can't do that by himself. So getting him in that pick and roll is probably their best option. And like you said, throwing Butler on uh, or Kawhi on Butler instead. And I think what the Raptors are going to do is they're going to try to make Tobias beat us offensively, kind of like we're we try to make. Siakam and Gasol beat us offensively last night, so I think they're going to shut down Butler and Embiid and try to make Tobias, because Tobias is probably our, I'd say, our, our second worst starter in creating his own shot, because he's a, he's a low-usage guy, so I think them force, uh, Nick Nurse forcing the Sixers to probably have a mismatch with Tobias Harris and forcing him to shoot a high-quality or a high-frequency of shots, high-volume of shots, because he's been cold this series. Yeah, I definitely think until Simmons kind of proves that he's willing to play aggressively and go to the rim and kind of attack as often as he can, switching Leonard to Butler would be a smart decision just to kind of take away the Sixers' main shot creator in the half court, especially when Embiid is out of the game. Um, And I think another thing Toronto is going to do is kind of try to get Kawhi more off-ball looks, run him through more screens, and just try to get switches, try to find more space for him to get him some cleaner looks. It hasn't mattered a ton in the first two games, just obviously he's still scoring a lot. They're kind of getting him into more of a rhythm, kind of finding finding ways to evade those double teams that came at him in game two. I think that's something Nick Nurse is going to toy around with and try to adjust. Yeah, I think that's definitely one thing that we'll see in game three. And one more thing, the last thing I want to add to this, is I think that Nick Nurse is going to, make the offense go at J.J. Redick more. He has guarded Green decently, but I think they're going to make increase Danny Green's movement on offense. So they're going to make J.J. run around more screens, make him try to switch more because J.J. always hedges really soft, which on the pick and roll can result in easy buckets for the roller because J.J. Redick will do anything he can to not be switched because if he switched onto 
the pick and roll ball handler, then it's either a foul or a made shot most times. So I think that the Raptors are going to go at JJ a lot on defense because they haven't really been going at him much in game one. So, and he already runs a lot on offense. So if he's running around on defense, then that kind of just limits him on offense with increasing his fatigue, especially if he's playing over 30, 35 minutes a game. Yeah, that's definitely something that I think is going to happen. And it, it'll probably lead to more situations where we see James Ennis playing kind of big minutes down the stretch just because of his defensive prowess. Definitely for sure. So to close it out, concerns for the Sixers for Game 3 and the rest of the series? The health of Monroe and Scott. That's that's Because if you don't have Monroe or Scott, you got to – Amir Johnson's proven to be the best back, back up center. I mean, Bolden's been okay as the power forward, but not the center. And I would have to rely on Amir. Amir hasn't – didn't even suit up since Game 1 of the Nets series until last night. So – <clears throat> until the game two against the Raptors. So I think we would have to rely more on Amir. The ideal situation is that we both have Scott and uh, Monroe back, and then you can kind of limit Monroe's minutes, but also increase both Scott's and Ennis's to give the starters more of a break. Uh, I guess my other biggest concern is, is can MB break out of this Gasol straitjacket? If he can't, then we're not winning this series. That's as simple as that. But if we, if he can, we have a legitimate shot of possibly upsetting the Raptors. It's it's crazy. So Scott and Monroe are dealing with injuries right now. And let's not forget that James Ennis had that claw contusion that put him out for two weeks. And he had it injured earlier in the year as well. So Ennis might not even be 100% right now. And those quad injuries, you can re-hurt them really easily. So it's crazy that... As a contending team, we're heavily relying on Mike Scott, James Ennis, and Greg Monroe. Who would have thought that at the beginning of the year? Especially, who would have thought a month ago that we'd be leaning on Greg Monroe against the Raptors in the second round? We always, like, everyone, when we signed Monroe, we all were joking that there's going to be one Monroe playoff game, and that was last night. But I don't think last night was just, like, a one-time thing. I think he can actually have effective minutes against this Raptors team. But just, if Scott can't return anytime soon that rotation is going to be even tighter. And if this game, go, if this series goes to six or seven games, those stars are going to be pretty tired by the end. Yeah, I do think a healthy Mike Scott would go a long way in kind of helping the Sixers get at least a few more minutes of rest for guys like Tobias and Ben. But yeah, the fragility of the second unit is a really big concern in any series, especially against a team as talented as Toronto. And as Lucas said, the Joel Embiid struggles. He's Clearly not at 100%, so I'm kind of worried to see how that develops. Um, I do anticipate that he will improve, but having Embiid kind of be anywhere close to his regular self is going to go a long way in helping the Sixers compete. But I do think Brown, again, deserves a ton of credit for the adjustments he made. The Sixers were much more effective in containing Kawhi and shutting down Pascal, and I think last night showed that the Sixers do have a very real chance to win this series. I still lean Raptors in six or seven, but I think the Sixers are going to make it competitive. And I think a lot of that credit goes to Brett and his newfound willingness to adjust and to make changes. So just a ton of credit to him. It was huge. I was going back to you back off of that. I just want to real quick. I would like to piggyback off of Chris statements about Brown. I think game two, 
has solidified that he's going to be back next next year because it showed that he can make adjustments to the playoffs. Even if they lose this series in six games, I think his job will be safe now because of that game two win. It should have been safe the whole time, but I mean, this just showed all the doubters in, that he's he can make adjustments in the playoffs. I mean, it's his second year as a head coach in the playoffs, and they played that weak Miami team in the first round, and they were just completely outmatched by the Celtics in the second round. But against this good Raptors team, going back home with splitting two games is huge. And I think Embiid being home, uh, I think he's going to be a lot more motivated and have a lot more energy and want to score more and play better. So I think that's going to help a lot. And I, I just I couldn't imagine if we were down 2-0 right now, just every – well, first off, all the Sixers fans and media would be freaking out. Brett Brown, everyone would be calling for Brett Brown's head, but Brett Brown's done everything he can with such a weak bench, a contending team with Mike Scott, James Ennis, and Greg Monroe. That just speaks volumes to how Brett's had to coach this team. Even last night, you think you have a, a set rotation with Ennis and Monroe, and Monroe gets hurt, so Brett on the fly has to scramble and throw Amir and Bolden there, and then Boban for that one minute. So it's if Monroe's hurt, that's going to be a lot of tough. But you have to admit that Brett's done a whole lot with what he's done, what he's had. And like I've said multiple times before on the pod, he's had three different teams this year. And the Sixers have had 26 guys that played for them this year. And that's more than any process year ever. So it just shows how much Brett's had to deal with, how many different lineups, rotations. So just a credit to him for sure. Yeah, I do think Joel definitely feeds off the home crowd's energy. So I do think going back home is going to help him a lot. And, yeah, with Brett, I think it would take some pretty weird crap over the next three to five games to make the front office even consider firing him if it was ever in the back of their mind at any point. But Brett has coached really well this postseason. He thoroughly outcoached Kenny Atkinson, who was widely regarded as an up-and-coming, really talented young coach. And he's outcoached Nick Nurse big time in game two. So I really don't think there's any justification at this point for firing him. He's gotten a lot out of a very limited roster, as you said, especially with how thin the second unit is. So I think he should 100% at this point be locked into his job next season. With the culture he's built and the amount that he's gotten out of this team, there's really no reason to think that he's on the hot seat. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, Nick Nurse didn't make any adjustments. They, they played game one, and you think that the Raptors, the, for as bad as the Sixers played in game one, the for the score to be as close as it was, was kind of a miracle. And in game two, Nick Nurse did nothing. He didn't change anything up. Offense was the same. Defensive assignments were the exact same. And so I guess we will see changes in game three, but it just makes you scratch your head that Nick Nurse did nothing different in game two. And that just, it also just shows – that Brett, Brett, Brett Brown's actually a good coach and should stay in Philly. Anything yeah, else? I'd be interested to, to get Toronto fans' opinion on, you know, Nick Nurse and Dwayne Casey and if they think that was the right move. Because I, I do think Nurse has made a lot of questionable decisions this postseason as a whole and his lack of adjustments these past couple of games have been, have been, has been interesting. So I'd really like to see just to see how that would go. I think Sixers won game three. Yeah, I I think they they definitely – I think it'll be 2-2 going back to Toronto for game five. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Sixers Sense podcast. Stay up to date with us on Twitter at Sixers Sense and visit us at thesixersense.com for more Sixers news, opinions, and more.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.